Summer is here, and we're as busy as ever at the DSR Network. Our podcast schedule has expanded to include the DSR Daily Brief, DSR Foreign Policy, DSR Politics, the DSR Spy Show, Words Matter, Foreign Office with Michael Weiss, Next in Foreign Policy, and The Secret Life of Cookies. To celebrate our expansion, we're bringing you this special offer. Through the month of June, membership is 50% off. Members receive an ad-free listening experience, bonus content across all of our podcasts, an evening newsletter, an invitation to join the DSR Slack community, and more. To take advantage of this offer, visit thedsrnetwork.com slash buy and enter code DSRexpands, all one word. That's thedsrnetwork.com slash buy and code DSRexpands. Thank you for your support. Nine. Twelve. Ten. Twenty-eight. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm your host, David Rothkopf, coming to you today from Washington, D.C. I'm very pleased to be joined today by two of our beloved regulars, starting with Rosa Brooks of Georgetown University Law Center. How are you doing, Rosa? I'm well, thank you, David. And where are you, Rosa? I am in Wyoming. Wyoming, your home away from home. My home away from home. Um, well, that's just a seed. Who says we're out of touch with America? And also, speaking of being out of touch with, no, no, that's not, that's not fair. <laughs> Ed, Ed, Ed Luce of the Financial Times, how are you doing, Ed? Doing very well with my ear close to the ground in Georgetown, Washington. Well, that's that's where it all happens. It is. But you know where it really all happens these days? In Florida. And we are joined from Florida by our friend, General Mark Hurtling, formerly the commander of the U.S. Army in Europe. How are you doing, Mark? David, I'm fine, but uh, I am close to the center of all creation down here, and, and it's very interesting. Uh, but still watching what's going on in Washington and seeing the connection between the two. Well, you've got alligators. We've got alligators. Um, I think you find this everywhere. Uh, I think, uh, as might uh, our listeners might be able to gather, one of the reasons we've got Mark here on a regular basis to talk about what's going on in Ukraine, uh, and of course the much uh, discussed uh, spring offensive that secretly and stealthily became a summer offensive, um, seems to be underway. Although, Mark, I've been reading, and what I've been reading is what we've seen thus far may not actually be the real bulk of this offensive because most of the troops and brigades that were trained by NATO and some of these new technologies have been held back thus far. How do you gauge where we are? Yeah, I I don't think we've seen the bulk of the offensive force, David. You're absolutely right there. Um, There have been some elements of the force that's been trained in various European nations. The one I'm most familiar with 
is the one that grappled here Germany. Uh, and we saw indicators of that when the Russians started using a lot of internet photos to show how they were mightily destroying the NATO equipment that had been given to uh, uh, Ukraine. But I don't think we've seen the bulk uh, or the, the full generation of momentum just yet. Uh, we will, in, in my take, probably within the next few days to weeks, uh, as the opening forces, uh, the ones that you could either call a reconnaissance in force or a probing action or a, a continuation of the shaping actions, uh, continue to go in multiple directions. But I think the major brigades that have been trained, and there's anywhere between, from what uh, open source intel says, between seven and 12 brigades, will probably start uh, conducting operations along several axes of advance, as we say in the military. Um, and I think they're probing the, the frontage to try and get the best places to send those major forces to break through. Now, the ones that have already started their operations, um, some of them have broken through the first two of the total of four uh, defensive belts that Russia has put in place. But the battlefield shifted, uh, primarily because of flooding, primarily because some things that uh, Ukraine has found out, uh, some things that Russia has done to shift forces into different areas because they've been uncovered uh, due to a, a series of things, one of which is the, the continued dynamics between Prigozhin and all of his, uh, his, his enemies within either the Pentagon or within Chechnya, uh, Pentagon, I'm sorry, within the Kremlin or within Chechnya, and they are still having quite a few personality conflicts. So as much as we would like to say, we're seeing something like a beachhead at Normandy with follow-on forces in the tens of thousands moving forward, I don't think we're ever going to see that. We're gonna see probably some main efforts and some supporting efforts in some key areas. But early indicators, and I'm sorry for going on so long, early indicators seem to indicate that they are heading to the southeast, as many of us have predicted, to try and break the M14 highway that goes from Rostov-on-Don all the way into Odessa and beyond, because that's the Russian major supply line. If that can be cut, it will be it will provide difficulties because it's not just a an autoway; it's also a railroad uh, with some key transload points of ammunition, supplies, and equipment. So that's the status of the war now. Uh, you've got different forces fighting, not just the conventional Ukrainian forces conducting the, the operations, but you have special operations forces within Ukraine that are doing magnificent work behind the lines. You have territorials, uh, the, the equivalent of our National Guard uh, within the different oblasts doing great things. You have a resistance force among the people. And then, uh, as we learned within the last 30 days, you even have the so-called Russian Volunteer Corps and the Liberty Russian Legion uh, conducting operations inside of the various Russian oblasts. So it should continue to get pretty sporty within the next couple of weeks. So Rosa and Ed, I'm sure you have questions for Mark. So let me just turn to each of you. Rosa. Uh, I was just, um, I like the term sporty, Mark. Um, that's a euphemism for chaotic, chaotic, bloody, uh, et cetera. Um, yeah, I mean, Mark, I'm going to ask you the question that I've been been asking everybody. Do you have any do you have any sense 
information, gut instinct, uh, anything on what where this is likely to end up, say three months from now or six months from now. You know, I, I, I keep I keep wondering what is the point what is the point where it becomes possible to have meaningful talks with some hope of, of uh, an actual resolution to the conflict? And, and do you think that there is a realistic likelihood that this offensive gets us to that point or too soon to say, uh, et cetera? No, I, I think the Ukrainian offensive will get us to that point, Rosa. I'm just not sure when and at, in what type of campaigns we will see. You know, when you're talking about campaigns, various actions at different times that are tied together to meet strategic objectives. And and what uh, President Zelensky has repeatedly said, and it was voiced so well by uh, the great Russian expert Ann Applebaum in an article she wrote uh, talking about how Zelensky has three major political objectives, um, regain territorial, inte- territorial integrity, uh, protect the, the people of Ukraine, and hold Putin and Russia accountable for their war crimes. Those are three tough strategic objectives. Putin, on the other hand, doesn't want to be embarrassed. Uh, He wants to continue, and he thinks he can continue, creating this super czarist state, uh, a return to the old guard. So what I think may happen, there, there are several potentials. Number one, I think Ukraine is going to be successful in their offensive operations it's going to be exceedingly bloody. Uh, and I'll, I'll go into something on that in just a minute because I just saw a news report with more pictures, similar pictures of, of, of the ones that have been coming up. In fact, it's the, actually the same picture that Russia keeps uh, refurbishing on the internet of the, the four Bradleys, the two, tiger, uh, two leopard tanks, and the mine lane equipment that they said they destroyed. I'll talk about that in just a second. But I think what we're going to see is a successful Ukrainian offensive. They will regain, regain territory in all of the oblast, especially Zaporizhia and Kherson and Donetsk. They will punish the Russian supply lines. There will be huge casualties on both sides. But then it will be uh, an opportunity for Mr. Putin to probably attempt to call for negotiations which I don't think Zelensky is going to buy into. And if that doesn't occur, there are indicators of the early planning for a Russian scorched earth policy. Now, you're, you're going to say, well, gee, they've been right. doing that all along. Yeah, right. But I know. I hate to what think I would what could say be is, worse. Yeah, but they haven't uh, done it in the territories that they've occupied, uh, especially Donetsk and Luhansk. So what you'll see if there is a withdrawal by Russian forces, and I think there will be, Mm -hmm. that they will attempt to destroy all the infrastructure and make the earth untenable Mm -hmm. in those areas. Mm -hmm. That's my best guess. Hmm. That's depressing. Or some of that is not depressing, but that last bit is certainly depressing. What what, what, what about you, Ed? What what was your question. Yeah, I, I was just about to remark, it sounds like, correct me if I'm wrong, your dog, um, Grizzly, is commencing a summer offensive. Is that the background noise I can hear um, on uh, Deep State Radio? Uh, but that might be me misinterpreting the noise. 
you, you, you might be. I think my dog Grizzly is on a shopping expedition right now. <laughs> All right, <laughs> that might have been my dog. It, it's oh. it's Rosa's dog. I'm I'm sorry for for mistaking. My dog has commenced a summer offensive against the the rabbit population of Wyoming, and it's long <laughs> past you. Long past you, um, uh, General. Thanks thanks for those remarks. Um, the the um, couple of things you said earlier. One was. Um, Prigozhin and, you know, the intra-Russian fighting and the signs that the Wagner group is or the Wagner group is going to be basically now directly taken over by the Russian Ministry of Defense or not, as the case may be. Um, what, what, to what degree does this hinder Russia's efforts to resist the Ukrainian um, counteroffensive? And then just another one, um, which is it's going to be months at the earliest before we get F-16s into the theatre. What impact will they have when they are there? Yeah, uh, first on the Prigozhin piece, to be honest with you, Edwin, I've, I've always thought that's a sideshow. Uh, he doesn't have that many forces. They are more thugs than professional military. He just throws them into the front. Uh, so I don't think, other than the fact that it's more meat uh, for the proverbial meat grinder that they continue to execute. Uh, there's not much more they can do. And in fact, they've been moving around uh, significantly. Uh, they have not received the blessings of either Shoigu or Gerasimov as they've continued the off- as they've continued the defensive. What I think is is more important to watch right now is, yes, as I said before, the Ukrainians have been able to get through the first defensive belts. Um, those have been defended, but lightly so. When they get more into defensive belt three and four in Zaporizhia and Kherson, you're going to find, I think, the Russians will defend a little bit more competently. Uh, they will certainly be able to defend more competently than they attacked, but it will really be hard to measure the attrition component of this. Now, I, I hearken back to my time uh, at our national training center in California, and I hate to bring up old war stories, but every single brigade rotation that came through, we would we would execute a training event that was an assault or an attack, a deliberate attack against a complex obstacle belt. And in every single brigade rotation I saw, to include my own, by the way, before I became the commander at the training center, I was a brigade commander. All of the brigades I saw execute this uh, failed miserably. Uh, there were a lot of battlefield detritus, uh, tanks, Bradleys, all sorts of things that have been hit with laser guns and marked as dead on the, on the training battlefield. And then we would rightly in the next few hours have an after action review where we would tell the commanders how they screwed up and how their soldiers didn't execute the way they were supposed to, because that's the way we train. Unfortunately. Ukraine is doing this for the first time in real life. And the other side doesn't have laser beams. It has real bullets. And they're defending behind an obstacle belt that's been put in place over the last seven months. So it is going to be very tough when they hit that third and fourth obstacle belt in those two. um, I think it's going to be uh, very tough when they hit those two. And it will all depend on how the Russian soldiers defend. Will they defend adequately or semi-competently is a question mark. 
if they just run away and do nothing, there will still be uh, casualties from mines and trenches and things that the Russians left behind. So again, th this will be a summer offensive that will have attrition on both sides. Uh, and Russia wants to attrit the Ukrainian forces as much as they possibly can. Uh, but I think the Ukrainian forces, even though they are fatigued, they've been fighting, they've been retrained, they've been reinforced, which the Russians have not been done, ha that has not been done to the Russian forces, it will lean in Ukraine's favor. So uh, again, it, it, you know, I, I say this sometimes on Twitter that, hey, be careful about everybody who's thinking that their Ukrainians are 10 feet tall and they can do anything because they're such a competent force. They are a good force, but they have never conducted a large-scale conventional attack like this before over a very wide area against a dug-in enemy. So it's going to result in attrition. To your second question, um, I know, by the way, if, if one more thing I should add, there are wild cards. Uh, the enemy always gets a vote. You know, they, they blew up the, the, uh, the one dam, uh, on the Dnipro a few days ago and it, it was disastrous for the Russians. Uh, they didn't, I don't think they realized how bad that was going to be, but they also just blew up another dam, uh, in the main area of attack, uh, where Ukraine is, is going in, into Donetsk. So we will see more and more of that. Um, as far as the F-16s go, you know, I, I've been painted as a contrarian in terms of the delivery of the F-16s. And there's various reasons for me being a contrarian. It's, you know, everyone says, hey, I'll use my own name. Hurtling says you shouldn't deliver because it takes too long to train them. And the Air Force says they can train them in three months. I, I wasn't talking about pilots. I was talking about support infrastructure. And even if you can get the support infrastructure in place, it's very difficult to run an air campaign in coordination with a ground campaign. And what, and again, I'm, my bias is going to come out on this one, what the Army has learned that when in the old days of mass artillery into area fires where the artillery rounds were hitting in a wide area, yeah, it was great to have air power to hit precise targets. But what I would suggest in on today's battlefield, when you have precision artillery weapons like the HIMARS, there is not as much of a need for air power uh, in a ground to or in an air to ground fight. Now I'm getting very deep into the weeds here, and I'm going to get all kinds of bad press for saying what I'm saying right now because David's uh, podcast is placed out all over the place. Air power is still important. And the U.S. military needs it when it goes into a large conventional fight. But I think when you're, we're delivering weapons to Ukraine right now, the most important thing are precision-guided artillery rounds, precision ground forces, and the ability to train them to fight. One other thing I'd say, Russia has proven to be, for those who are following this very closely, increasingly good at learning the lessons of electronic warfare. They have interfered with Ukrainian drones. They have interfered with Ukrainian precision-guided weapons. And electronic, uh, electronic warfare is the, is the number one enemy of any kind of aircraft unless you've got jammers out in front of it, electronic aircraft that will shut down the air defense. And again, Russia also has very good air defense systems. 
sorry, would you mind if I just followed up, David, with one uh, with one question there? Um, just on the F F sixteen, the assumption I had made, you know, being a, definitely a non military expert, is that since this was top of the priority list of the Zelensky government, and they are best placed to judge what they need, shouldn't that be given more priority in your in your evaluation? Of, of the role of this? It, it, no, uh, to be honest with you, no. And I think uh, Secretary Austin has said the same thing. And it's all because of the reasons I just said. You need, if, if you're going to retake ground, which is their primary strategic objective, you need ground forces on the ground to plant a flag. An aircraft dropping bombs in close air support, first of all, requires a lot of training and coordination and resupply but it also doesn't take the ground. It can only fly over it. Now, every Air Force every Air Force officer in the world is now baited to come after this old tottering general that just said that, but I'll stick with my assessment on that. Um, you're not tottering, Mark. <laughs> um, uh, let me ask you a question. Uh, you mentioned earlier these sort of irregular, um, unofficial forces that are exploring across into Russian territory. Does that make any difference? It certainly does, uh, because the Russians then have to decide where are we going to place our forces to defend. If, if they take an element of their defense force, especially potentially elements of their air defense and electronic warfare, because those are the things you need against either resistance drones or Ukrainian drones, and move it to the front line, it means something is uncovered. And what they found out in Belgorod, in Kursk, and in uh, Smolensk, that when they leave things uncovered, they get struck. Uh, so it, it, it puts Mr. Putin really on a razor's edge of what do we do with forces? He can't mobilize enough to send to the front lines already. So if you now say, hey, you've got to pull some forces, especially air defenders and electronic warfare, off the front lines and have them encircle Moscow or St. Petersburg or Belgorod, it, it depletes your ability to put forces in the defense. And it leaves holes for, for Ukraine to, uh, to, to push through. So I'd like to turn again to Rosa, but if I may, I would like to ask you a question, Rosa, and then you can ask one to Mark or Ed or anybody, um, your dog even, Rosa. Um, and, and that is, uh, what it, it's clear that this is going to be the summer of Trump indictments in the United States. I mean, we are going to be heavily, the news, I mean, I don't think Ukraine has entered a news story in a long time. What effect do you think that's likely to have, Rosa, on America's ability to support all this? Or, or is it a good thing that sort of out of the mind's eye for a while? I mean, today we just had an announcement of another big tranche of aid to the Ukrainians. Uh, but, it, you know, it doesn't even get announced anymore in the press um, to speak of. I'm just wondering how you think that affects the U.S. ability to support all this. <sighs> It's it's hard to know. I mean, it might turn out to be a good thing insofar as the the Republicans who are most hostile to support to Ukraine 
are the same Republicans who will be most exercised by, you know, the need to blather endlessly about Trump and the indictments and so forth. So maybe that will keep them too busy to bother with, you know, making obnoxious noises about Ukraine. Uh, <laughs> and we can only hope, right? Um, I, you know, the the overall, I think it's not a good thing that Americans have lost interest in Ukraine. And I, I think that we, we get very excited, then we sort of lose interest, and then something awful happens, and then we get really excited again for a little while, then we lose interest again. And, you know, that's not a terrific cycle, obviously, and it's not great for uh, sustaining long-term support. But at this moment, given 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 that the only real opposition in, in a in a the only politically potentially troublesome opposition is coming from the far right, um, I, it might not be a bad thing if they're distracted. And everybody is going to be very, very, very distracted because, as we all know, President Trump as president was very distracting, and former President Trump as a former president is also exceedingly distracting. Um, well, let me ask, if I, if I may, then the question to Mark that follows that, which is, I, I've been under the impression the U.S. has sort of pre-funded all the support we want to give to Ukraine through the end of this year or something like that. Um, are you concerned that, that we may have a hiccup in all that? Um, yes. Uh, there, there, there are some indicators that the budget is about maxed out. And again, I, I, if I can connect this to Ed, Edward's earlier question about the F-16s, um, so far there's been, by my estimate, a little over $40 billion in aid from the U.S., and probably a total of $70 billion if you take into account all of the allies in terms of money. And it all has come as a, at a political cost. Because the, the weapon systems that we're talking about donating to this fight, as I've said so many times before, there's no, there's no weapons Walmart store where you just go in and pick up a bunch of F-16s and hand them over to a new country. These, these are weapons that are either coming out of operational environments or are part of contingency planning. Ukrainians said they wanted to use the F-16 as an example, and I'm, I'm tying this to your question about the budget, uh, David. Uh, they said they wanted 200 F-16s. If you take the cost, and, and that's about 14 or 15 equivalent U.S. squadrons of F-16s. I mean, we don't even have close to that many. Um, so what we're saying is a, a complete build of a Ukrainian Air Force. In and of itself, the delivery of those 200 planes with their support infrastructure, not counting bombs or missiles that they would use, would cost in and of itself between 50 and $60 billion, by my estimate. Now, I might be off because I'm not an airman, but I do know how they do their budgets. So if you're saying, hey, we're, we're going to deliver this thing that they need, and this thing that they need isn't going to come until four to six months from now, and it's more of a cost factor than what we've delivered in Toto so far. You can see where I think Austin and Reznikov and the other defense ministers are saying, hey, let's focus more on what is needed now, what can be supported now, and what is the most important thing now as opposed to looking six months out. Now, the, 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 uh, the commitment is a different story. 
when various nations say, hey, we're committing to a future air force for Ukraine, I'm 100% behind that. I'm also 100% behind an entire tank corps for Ukraine of M1A1 Abrams. But that's not what they can handle right now. And, and now everyone's going to say, oh, Hurtling says the Ukrainians can't handle it. Ukrainians can handle anything. They can't support anything. And that's the challenge right now in terms of building this new army, new air force, and even in the future, a new navy for Ukraine with their Black Sea and Azov Sea fleet. So, David, that's a long way around answering your question. It's going to be, as Rosa just said, increasingly difficult for the for the Congress of the United States to continue to bless off on either presidential drawdown authority, uh, the so-called PDA, which we're, we're now through number 41, I think, or just, you know, complete U.S. AID aid or U.S. State Department aid to Ukraine. And it's going to be especially important when you're talking about more, you're going to talk more than the military, something beyond the military, when if Ukraine is successful, as I think they will be, what is the Marshall Plan equivalent look like and how much is that going to cost? I heard, I heard a price tag yesterday that just the reconstruction of the Karkokova Dam, which was failed yesterday, would be a billion dollars. And that's not the downrange damage to the croplands and the, the infrastructure of those various oblasts. So the, the whole post military operations is something I think they're going to depend on the Western world for as well. No doubt. Been a subject we've discussed before. Uh, I want to get to Ed's question and comment in a moment, but this is the time where we say thanks to everybody in the general public who's been listening. Uh, Hope you've enjoyed this conversation. I think you will have, uh, uh, because the the comments have been extremely valuable. And if you have, then go become a member, help support what we're doing. Go to the dsrnetwork.com, click on membership, and uh, it's $5 a month, and and you can help us uh, continue to do what we've been doing for the past uh, six years. We do have to mark our sixth anniversary of Deep State Radio, by the way, which is right now. I mean, it's like six years ago today or something very close to that. Um, But that'll be off in the future. 